All right. Well, we are going to continue our exposition through the book of Exodus, really going passage by passage, working through uh, the meaning and significance of this text, and not just for ancient Israel, because that's who this was first to, but even for us as people that walk with the same God now by faith. And what strikes us as we turn uh, the next chapter, and really the next few chapters, it all gets into these technical details about building this thing called a tabernacle, this place where God will dwell with His people. And so even this morning as I begin, I warn you, this is as my friend Abner likes to say, this is more of a lerman than a sermon. This is a lecture sermon. Uh, Maybe you've never heard a lecture where the guy yells as much as I might later on, but here we go. This is something of a cross between a sermon and a lecture, but I'll show you diagrams. This is so much fun. Uh, The building plans and things. But in the end, it's all about God preparing to live with His people. And so I played on that idea with this familiar term, at least from my childhood, won't you be my neighbor? Uh, But a similar one or expression that comes uh, to my mind about the neighborhood is this one. If you ever heard or used the expression, there goes the neighborhood, uh, I admit that was probably under my breath as I was driving around there in Lux Lane just over here, and I saw them like building something. I didn't know they could build right there where 288, like the off-ramp uh, comes at Lux Lane. Like there's power lines there. How can you put anything there? Uh, but they're moving earth. I'm really intrigued. And then I started to recognize, oh, they're building a gas station. A gas station? There goes the neighborhood. I mean, that's about what I said. I'm like, because what does that mean? That means loitering. That means crime. That means it's coming into my neighborhood here. It shows you the great pessimist that I am about everything. Um, but nevertheless, when I found out it was a Sheets gas station, then I went, well, okay. <laughs> Those are nice ones. You know, they're a little bit better. Um, but maybe you've said the same thing driving around. You know, it's, I guess once ever the codes changed around here in Chesterfield, it's like condos are going up everywhere, apartments everywhere, the beautiful trees that we just so relish right now. I mean, the colors are amazing. They're just all being plowed and mowed down to put down another big box. And then I say, there goes the neighborhood. Well, what if with all the remodeling and building that's taking place, what if it was for this so that God could move into town? Uh, Would you think differently then? Because honestly, that expression, there goes the neighborhood, would be more true than ever. Because nothing could change a neighborhood quite like God moving in next door. And that's the thing that's gone on. Because if God did move next door, if He moved in the neighborhood, what should one do in response? Because that's the very matter we're turning to this morning. It's pictured here with Israel. There's this whole building of this tabernacle, a place where God can be in the neighborhood with His people. But that's not just for Israel. Uh, It's even culminated all the more now for Christ has come down from heaven to live in our neighborhood. But more than that, for His people, He actually comes to live right inside of your literal neighborhood, your body. He comes to live in you, with you. He's moving in, and when he gets that close, when he's getting that close in proximity, how should we respond to him? That's what we're going to cover in the next couple weeks as we look at this tabernacle. So this is part one of part two about God coming to be our neighbor, and what does this mean? It means this. God is a relational God. He wants to get close. In this way, maybe unlike some of us in this room, he's not an introvert. He actually wants to have a relationship. He's actually pulling to get close to you. He's a relational God who moves in close. 
So then our response should be to not run from him, to not ignore him, certainly, but reciprocate. Receive his advances. Draw near in this relational closeness to this relational God. He wants to know you. That's why he's coming close. And we're going to see this in four different responses. How should you respond when God moves in? And we'll cover the first two this week, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll cover the next two. But when God moves in, what do you first need to do? You need to worship His royal highness. That's Him. And we're going to see that in verses 1 to 9 of chapter 25. Worship His royal highness. The first thing that stands out as God moves into the neighborhood is that He demands... More than this, he just deserves. He deserves to be worshipped. And the kind of worship he should get is the worship fit for a king, because that's who he is. Now, one of the main takeaways that we saw last week as we were in Exodus 24 was this truth, is that God actually, he actually likes his people. He actually wants to be with them, believe it or not. Again, and the believe it or not is, because how has God shown himself on Mount Sinai so far? It's been like a burning volcano that he's warned them, don't get too close or you'll be consumed, right? There's been the warnings, there's been the lightnings, the thunders, the fire. But with all of that, he's actually saying, I want to get close to you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be with you. Even though we saw in particular last time, looking at chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, really the culmination of God getting close was to have a meal with these people. That's the kind of closeness we're talking about. So looking back, we were in chapter 24, verses 9 through 11 at the end there, and we saw this select 74 persons get to ascend further up Mount Sinai to actually see God. It's incredible. It's one of the high points in the whole Old Testament. But not to then be destroyed by Him and His holy presence, but to actually know Him, to have fellowship with Him. Because again, the culmination of that, look at the end of verse 11 of chapter 24, It just highlights what's so astonishing here. They beheld God and ate and drank. And that's summarizing how close God wants to get. This is table fellowship with God. This is illustrative of this closeness, this giving and taking, a sharing back and forth. That's really what fellowship is. And God wants that with you, His people. And understand, for us, this is life itself. Knowing God. It's what Jesus said, John 17. This is eternal life, that they would know God. And though he had this incredible interaction, and this was a high point, really almost unrepeated in the Old Testament, in a sense, God wants to capture that kind of closeness ongoing with his people. That is, as God wants to be close with his people, he didn't want it to be one special dinner One nice event, and then just things go back to the way they were. He wants to be with them all the time. He wants to have an abiding, ongoing interaction between them and us. He wants to capture this kind of intimacy in an ongoing way with his people. And so that's what his next instructions he gives to Moses are all about. It's about how do we capture this? How do we keep this kind of closeness moving forward? So look at verse 12 of chapter 24 still? Because that's what happens. They go and see God, they fellowship with Him, and then we have verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me, God says, on the mountain, you, Moses, and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone 
Okay, so the 74 get to worship on the mountain, but then Moses gets called further up and further in, right? And as he's called up further in, God says, I'm going to give you the tablets of stone. These are going to be me writing down the, probably the Ten Commandments, a summary of our relationship, our covenant. So he tells him, I'm going to give you those tablets, but it is not until after 26, 27, 28, 29, 30. At the end of 31, chapter 31, that's where he gives him the tablets, And so what's between him saying, come up here, let me give you the tablets, and actually then giving the tablets to Moses? What's in between there, besides a lot of words? It's the instructions on this building, the tabernacle. It's all about how God can have this place where he can dwell with his people. It's the construction plans, it's the instructions on how to build this tent so he can continue to have this intimate, table-like fellowship with Israel. Because understand, Israel's on a mission. They've been rescued out of Egypt. They are brought to Mount Sinai to meet God. And then God is sending them off to the promised land in Israel to go take it over. But here's the thing. God's not going to let them go without him. He's bringing them to meet him so he can go with them. And so this means they need to build him a sanctuary. He calls it in verse 8 or verse 9. It's called the tabernacle of chapter 25. So, but before they can build this structure, this tent, uh, they need resources to put it together. And so that's where we now turn the page to chapter 25. So let's see this. They're going to gather the resources they need to build this tent for God. Exodus 25, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may make, excuse me, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So what is this? But this is an offering of worship. This is his people being redeemed by him, extolling him and coming back and saying, I want to praise you. I want to honor you. I want to attribute worship to you. I want to show what you are worth by giving back to you. This is about humble praise and submission given to God, the God who has rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Which brings up an interesting point. You know, he asked them, hey, however your heart moves you, come and give me something in worship. But, you know, up till this, they've been slaves their whole lives. Uh, They've been out of slavery about three months. And in the meantime, they were wandering through a desert wilderness before they came to Mount Sinai. So what could they possibly have on hand to actually give back to God? Well, of course, you remember, and we studied this, when they came out of Egypt, they didn't come out empty-handed. Remember this? God actually had the Israelites plunder the Egyptians as they came out. The Egyptians were even like, yeah, take all my gold, take all my stuff, get out of Egypt with your God. Lest we all die was really the implication. So they all came out of Egypt, the Israelites did, hands full. With all of this that they didn't earn, God gave it to them. But for what? Why did they need this stuff? Well, they finally came to what they needed for. They didn't need it to cook. God was providing manna in the wilderness. They didn't need it for their basic necessities. They got all of these treasures so they can give them back to God. For this very purpose, to worship Him. To recommit these things that He gave them right back to God in worship. And as they do this, we already read it there in verse 2. 
But we see that these contributions, they're not mandatory. You don't even have to give. It's just whose ever heart is moved to give. It's all voluntary. Again, back to verse 2. For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. In other words, do you want to express thanks to this God who's heard your cries in slavery? Do you wish to praise this God who delivered you from the Egyptians' whip? Do you want to thank this God, and we can say the same, who has saved you and rescued you for himself? Do you want to praise him? If your heart so moves you, then, well, yeah, give to him. And we see, though, that you give. You don't, you give your very best. Because the implication is, not, is not our king worthy of this? Is he not worthy of our best? Because next, that's where we get this first clear look at really his royal kingship. And it's in the kind of materials that are asked for that'll be used to build this tabernacle. The point is, these kind of materials are only fit for a king. We'll see this in verses, namely verses three through seven. We're gonna have to summarize. You can read through them. We did just a moment ago in the uh, scripture reading. But what strikes us about these things, these are not bare necessities, you know, God is practical, yeah, but as he's building this tabernacle where he's going to live, it's not modest. Now, it's kind of modest because it's a mobile home. He needs it to be a tent so it can move with his people through the wilderness, but it's not modest. It is adorned with only the finest things in the ancient world, gold, silver, and all of the finest metals. And remember, they came out of Egypt, and even today we understand Egyptian linens are amazing. Well, that comes even from history. And these special finest linens have all the royal colors associated with them of blue and purple and scarlet. And then it mentions all the precious stones. These are all things fit only for a king because God is not only going to live, he's going to reign right in the midst of his people. But although, right, God invites them to participate, you can give to this building project, but get this, As king, he's not going to let you draw up the plans. He's not going to leave the construction of this to any way you might want or any way your heart might want to lead you. I hope you understand by now Disney's whole follow your heart is horrible advice, especially when it comes to thoughts about God and how you should worship him. As king, he gets to call the shots. He gets to say how he is to be worshipped. And that holds true for today, even in his church. Why do we do what we do? Because it's in the book. That's why we read the word. He tells us to do it in the book. That's why we pray the word. That's why we preach the word. That's why we sing the word. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and following. That's why we even see the gospel word. Why? Because we're commanded to do it in the Lord's table and baptism. God calls the shots. And he calls the shots here about the tabernacle because he sets up exactly how it's supposed to look. So look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 25. What are they going to do with all these things they get together? Verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, that I may dwell in their midst. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Verse 9 then, it's how are they supposed to make it? Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle of all and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. 
And as we read through these chapters, a statement just like this repeats itself over and over and over again. Again, he's leaving nothing to chance. He sets up the pattern. The idea of even pattern here is probably like building plans. I'm showing you exactly how the tent's supposed to be built. Here's the appropriate materials. Here's all of the right proportions. Here's the specific designs. This isn't a time for you to get creative. This is a time for you to submit to me as king and build it just as I say. In other words, God is king of this building project. He planned it. He funded it. He's engineered it. And now he's also the general contractor who's going to watch all of his workers so they do it just his way, the right way. He leaves nothing to chance nor anything to the Israelites' imaginations because he's king. And so as we then would worship this God and all of his kingly greatness, okay, This means your worship back to him has to be defined by two things. What we've seen in this text. One, it has to be heartfelt, that's sincere. And then two, it has to be obedient. Heartfelt and obedient. First, this means that as you come to worship him, you got to come freely, sincerely. What does that mean? You actually come to worship because you want to be with him. You actually like him. And this is fitting because you get this. He offers you his life. He actually came from heaven to give his life for you. Why? Because he actually wants to be with you. He wants reconciliation. And our response has to be reciprocated. In that way, God's not going to force himself on you. That is, without heart change. Without a true love for him and desire for him like pulling teeth. That's not genuine worship. It should be actually because we want him. We want to. We're delighted in him. We're reminded of all the benefits he's given us in Christ. And so the implication is, if you don't actually love God, don't assume you're actually going to heaven then. Because that's the place where God is. If heaven for you is something more than just getting more of God then you're probably not going there. Or another way to say it, if you can imagine a heaven that is not all about Jesus and him being king there, then you don't understand what makes heaven heaven. God is right to demand that we love him. And he does so with, he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, because he's king, but he's the king who saves us. And he's saying, because I first loved you, you should love me back. Now, we don't always, of course, love him like we should. You know, we take him for granted. Maybe like you do with your your spouse or your kids. You know, we do that over and over. We get bored of them, in a sense. They're always there. And so you don't make time for them. They'll always be around. We'll always get to it later when it really matters. And then something that really matters happens. Uh, you, you get separated, they're in danger, they're sick, and, and you realize then like how good it is, how great and how, what a mercy it is, this relationship you have. But you only see it when you're in danger of losing it. 
Well, so this word is for us, don't overlook the greatness of your king and what it is to have a relationship with him. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of all the sincerity of your heart. And if that is not where your heart is, even as you come to worship this morning, like we talked about last week, we realize if God doesn't seem great to us, if we don't want to worship him, where's the problem? It's not him, right? It's right in here. So what do you need to do? You need to rebuke your heart. (laughs) You need to remind your heart. Don't we see the psalmist do this? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. You're on the wrong channel. Forget not all his benefits. O my soul, bless him. Preach to yourself. And in that way, let your heart be warmed again in heartfelt devotion. Our worship should be sincere. But second, related to that, if he's our king, that means our worship needs to be humble. Or in other words, it needs to be obedient. We don't worship him as our king if we don't actually obey him at all. In other words, you can't just have good thoughts about Jesus. You know, a positive inclination to him. Or he can't just make your heart flutter and that's worship. He can't just make you cry when you sing a praise song to him and you think that's worship. That's not worship that honors him if you disobey him so freely with the rest of your life. That's not heartfelt worship. And actually, if anything, do you know what it is? It's just flattery. It's hypocrisy. Really, it's nothing. It's just words. So worship His Royal Highness by doing what He says, right? Heeding His Word. That's what He's worthy of. That's what Israel is called to here. But second, when He moves in, we worship His Royal Highness, Him as a King, but we also are to welcome His presence. And this would capture the rest of chapter 25, verses 10 to 40. Verses 10 to 40. Welcome His presence. Don't reject him. Don't stiff arm him, as we say. Don't Heisman him. Receive him. He's drawing near. Because this is the theme that keeps rising as we'll look at this building, the tabernacle. It's all about God wants to be with his people. He wants to get close. He wants to be neighbors. He's moving right into town. And again, because isn't that what he said? Let's go back. Look at chapter 25, verse 8 now to return to it. 25, verse 8 tells us what this is all about. Why is he asking for these contributions? Why is he collecting all of this stuff? Verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And the operative word there being dwell. That I may dwell, that I may live right with them. That's what he wants. That's what he's after. And how is he going to do that? Verse 9. Well, evidently, it's going to be in this what's called the pattern of the tabernacle. This is the sanctuary, the holy place where he's going to live with his people. It's in this tent called a tabernacle. And actually, our English word tabernacle derives from the Latin word, I suppose, that's related to the word tent. But understand, the Hebrew behind this, even as it talks about a tabernacle, really has nothing to do with the tent. In the Hebrew, the word tabernacle has nothing to do with the kind of structure it is. It's about what happens within the structure. Namely, God lives there. 
This isn't so much about a tent after all, though that's what it will be. It's about it being a dwelling place, a home for God. And to show you this, look at where the root word or how the root word for dwelling occurred earlier, because it's the same one used for tabernacle, at least in the original language. So look back up to chapter 24, verse 16. Actually, go back up to verse 15. 24, 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain. So remember, he's being called up even closer. And the cloud that was representing God covered the mountain. Verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. That's, the, that's our word. And that word dwelt is where we get our word tabernacle from, at least in the Hebrew. Now, this is incredible. The glory of God dwelling on the, on the mountain and what it had looked like. Skip down to verse 17. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. This is God, and he's living on the mountain, and then he's saying, and I want you to make a dwelling place where I can live with you just like that as your neighbor. That might be intimidating. We'll get more to that in a couple weeks. But the point is, the same way he was in a special way living on the mountain, such that they could see him, right? And they could then fellowship with him. It's the same way he wants to live with them. Again, chapter 25, verse 8, that I may dwell, same idea, in their midst. So that's what building this tabernacle is all about, that God would live with his people. He wants to get close, and he wants to get close even in his full glory. He wants them to know him in full, and he wants to know them. Now, we're going to see the plans for this are indeed a tent. Later, it will be called the tent of meeting. And why does it need to be a tent? Well, it's because he's got to be on the move. His people aren't home yet. They're not in the promised land. They all live in tents, so he's going to live in one. And he's going to move right in their neighborhood. And he's going to go with them all the way to the promised land. That's the whole point of the tabernacle. God wants to be with his people. But then as we turn, looking at verses 10 and following for the rest of this chapter, we encounter the different, or some of, the furniture pieces that go in God's house. God gives the plans for, here's how you're going to build my house, and then here's the furniture you're going to build for me in my house. And it's a little different than the Ikea instructions. But I'm going to give you some diagrams, okay? But even all of the pieces of furniture are telling you something. God wants to live with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's what the whole tabernacle is telling us over and over again. Because we're going to look at it as we see as we go to chapter 25 with the furniture pieces. We're going to see this thing, an ark, whatever that is, a table and a lampstand. And they're all telling us the same story. God wants to get close. He wants to know you. And so let's turn to the first of it. The first article of furniture there in verse 10 is this ark, also known as the ark of the covenant. Let's look at verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. In other words, it would have looked something like this. And what we're talking about when we're talking about the ark, we're talking about the lower part of this. That is the box. What is it? Another way to say an ark is a chest. It's a sacred, holy chest, and its sacredness or holiness is shown by the gold. And this was pure gold, the finest gold of the ancient world, and it was covering the outside and the in. 
And it wasn't that big. It was nearly four feet long or so, about two and a half feet wide, and then about that same height. So this is not a huge piece of furniture. And yet it was very important. You notice as well, it's not to be handled. That's why it has these long poles and the rings. You weren't to go touch the box. You had to carry it by the poles. Now, and we saw what happens when you do touch the box, right? And Samuel with Uzzah, he reaches out and touches the box unauthorized, and he is struck down because his sinfulness encountered the holiness of God. You shouldn't touch it. And we read in verse 16 that it's a box, but it's not an empty box or to be an empty box. It's actually supposed to have something in it. Let's look, verse 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. He's going to give you these stone tablets. That's the testimony. And they're going to go in the box. Which again, those tablets will probably have the Ten Commandments on them. All these laws that we've been rehearsing for some time now. And we actually see patterns like this in the ancient Near East that is in the other cultures that would have been around Israel and in Egypt. That is often the king's of those ancient lands or their deities, that they would have such boxes at their feet. It would be their footstool under their throne. And in the box, they would put the covenant or treaty details for the peoples they had conquered. It would be housed in that sacred chest, and that's what's being replicated here. So in that box are the very terms of agreement to how God relates to Israel why they are His people, and why He is their God. It's encapsulated here in the ark. But the point is, as He's ruling over them, it's about that relationship. It's about that covenant. He wants to be with them. Now, that's not the only aspect of the ark that's mentioned in any detail here. For you notice the ornate top, or lid, that's called the, here in the text, the mercy seat. And you see it described in some detail, starting there in verse 17. Of course, we have to summarize, but this ornate lid by various translations is given various names. Sometimes it's called, yes, a mercy seat or an atoning cover or an atonement lid or an atonement cover. And they're all okay. I, I maybe like atonement cover best. Because in and of itself, the Hebrew word behind what's in your ESV Bible that says mercy seat, the Hebrew word behind that just is the Hebrew word really for a cover. And like our English word cover, the Hebrew word cover can have multiple senses. Like it can be a lid, a cover. Like your Tupperware thing needs a lid. It needs a mercy seat, so to speak. To put it back in the fridge. Well, it can mean that. But also our word cover is that wrongs can be covered over. And in the Hebrew word, we usually translate that then atoned. And this word means the very same thing. You can cover over openings, but you can also cover over sins. And that's why maybe atonement cover is a very fitting name. And this atonement cover, the mercy seat, became so significant in particular on that high holy day, the day of atonement, or the day of literally covering. It's another way you could say that where Israel's sins were covered over with blood, and that blood was splattered before or wiped upon the mercy seat, this lid. Because what was that doing? It was making atonement. The sins were covered over. That which separated you and God were moved away so you could be at peace. Remember, we talked about atonement, at one mint. 
can have a relationship. The blood covers the sin, so there's a relationship now. Because look at verse 22. Because here's then what happens, or what can happen when atonement happens. Fellowship happens. Communication happens. Exodus 25, 22. There I will meet with you, that is, at the mercy seat. And from above the mercy seat, from above the two cherubim, that's those figures on top of that lid. We'll talk more about them, Lord willing, next week. That are on the Ark of the Testimony. What's going to happen there where atonement happens? I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is where we're going to interact. This is where we're going to have, in one sense, you might say, an exchange of ideas. Though not a collaboration, but really in a sharing, a revealing. Now we're going to go through some of these details about how to build this whole tabernacle and all this stuff. Uh, but if you were to explain it to a friend, you know, somebody's like, hey, what'd you learn at church today? Well, he had diagrams up today. He's telling us all about the tabernacle. Now what might you do? I would probably have started with like the big picture and then gotten smaller. Right? Well, okay, the tabernacle was this tent, uh, but it had a courtyard, and then you got the tent in the middle, and then we'll work our way inside. But that's not how God does this. When he's going to give the parameters, the pattern for how this works, he starts right in the middle, so to speak, with the most important piece of furniture, the mercy seat, because this is where he meets his people. And then from there, he works his way out. It's like an atomic bomb of fellowship. Here is the blast point, and we're moving out from there. This is where reconciliation happens. This is where, and the picture is, again, this is his footstool. It's like his feet come down onto this box. Remember, we saw in Sinai, the only thing they saw of him, when they bowed down low in close worship, they saw his feet. Well, it's like his feet now are sitting on the box, and he's recaptured the kind of closeness he had on Sinai with them in the tent. He's sitting on his throne in heaven, but heaven's coming down and interacting here, but right here at the mercy seat. Why? Because he wants to be close. He wants fellowship. He wants to be with his people. And most intimately, he does it here. This is precisely where he moves to town. The next piece of furniture, as we turn to verse 23, is the table. Now, while the text has yet to orient us where all the furniture goes, let me give you a diagram. So eventually everything will look like this, but let me give you a little bit of the bigger picture here. This is what the tent itself, the tabernacle, would have looked like. And you'll notice, or can notice, it's divided into two rooms, and on the back part, you have the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is right there. And there's a big veil that it's open so we can see past, and that opens to what is called the holy place. And there's some pieces of furniture, we're going to see two more, that are in the holy place too, that are all about God's presence. And so the next piece we're going to look at is this one, the table of showbread. It's there in the holy place, and up close it would have looked something like this. It's about three feet wide, foot and a half deep, and about as tall as the ark. I think it was two and a half feet. So it's not real big. Old, just like the ark. You'll see the closer you get to God, everything's covered with gold. When you move out, gold's not as prominent. Two, like the ark, you'll see that it has those poles. 
That's the way it's supposed to be transported and carried. And then you'll notice there's these large, 12 large round bread loaves set on it. And they are to be there all the time. Chapter 25, verse 30, And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So what is this table all about? Well, there's a couple things here. First of all, we know according to Leviticus, yes, there's supposed to be 12 loaves put on the table. Each one represents God's supply, how he meets the needs of each one of the tribes of Israel. He's meeting directly the needs of his people. And actually, we notice too from the different utensils here, there's going to be drinks on this table as well. So what's going on? You're going into the tent, you're going into God's house, and when do you see one of the first things? You see a table with food on it. What's the implication? What's to happen here? Fellowship. Remember we saw on Mount Sinai, they saw God the ate and drank. Well, here it is being recaptured here in the temple, or excuse me, the tabernacle. This is a place that shows God wants to have a feast. He wants to have a sit-down meal with God and men here. Made the clearest point, though, about what this table is all about. It's just found in the name. Again, back to verse 30. It's called the bread of the presence, where the presence of God meets his people. Ever here in the holy place. The next piece of furniture described there in verse 31 is the golden lampstand. It's located just across in the holy place from the table, it's on the south wall. And up close, the golden lampstand would have looked like this. And you'll notice, again, we're having to summarize, but as the text describes it, this lampstand, it's defined by many botanical, tree-like figures and terms. You have stems, you have blossoms, you have branches, calyxes. It looks like it's a budding, living tree. But interestingly, it's a tree that gives off light. Here it is, verse 37. And you shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in the front of it. So this tree lamp of solid gold provided all the light in the holy place for God's ministers to see and work there. And thus far, you know, we've been seeing that this is all about God's presence. God's going to be with his people. And the Bible often speaks of the light of God's face, about it coming into the light. Because recall, as the priests come out and they pronounce the Aaronic blessing, it's called, over the people of God, Re remember how the blessing goes. You know this. This is number 6, 24 and 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But God turning his face to you is his light shining upon you. This is about fellowship, looking God eye to eye in unity. God wants to be in your life to light your way in this dark world. So what is this tabernacle all about? presence, God's presence. He wants to live with his people. He wants to meet them and enjoy fellowship with them. The ark tells us this, God wants to be near you. He's coming down to make peace. The table shows us this, shows us that God wants to have a sit-down meal with his people. He wants to share life. 
The lampstand shows us this because it shows that he wants to shine the face of his presence upon us. And yet, despite all of the steps he is taking and taken, how are you responding to his advances? He's coming in close to call us to welcome his presence, and yet so often in our heart, what do we feel like doing? Just keeping him at his arm's length. I mean, what does it look like today to not welcome him? To not welcome his presence in your life? I, I could come up with just three things, kind of right off the top, and they're really all kind of related. First, to not welcome him in your life, it looks like avoiding him. It looks like trying to just ignore God in your life. Well, how do you do that? I mean, it seems kind of easy. He's invisible. But what does it look like practically? It looks like faithlessness. Which, what does that look like? Prayerlessness. Thoughtlessness about God through your day. You don't even think about Him. What else can that look like? You're just avoiding thoughts about Him. And so that means your Bible, it just collects dust. Or your Bible app just only opens to Exodus on Sundays, right? It doesn't get used anymore during the week. And you also then start avoiding his people altogether. You start missing church services. And your members are texting you, hey, missed you. And you just, I'll get to it later. It's not that important to me. You start to avoid him in the end. That's one way. Second way to avoid him or not welcome him is that you just stay in your sin. You just don't repent. Oftentimes, this is why we avoid reading the Bible or coming to fellowship, because we're afraid we're going to get convicted. If I go back to that book, I'm going to feel guilty, so I don't want to do that. Or we're afraid as we interact with the church and the people of God, oh, they might get close to me, and they might find really what I'm like, and then... And I don't want to be told I have to change, frankly. I can't let that pleasure go. And you, you already know in your heart... You can't hold on to that sin and try and hold on to God. So you just avoid him altogether. Or third, we can just avoid God. Maybe the church, the Bible, or Christians, we don't welcome him because we just feel so ashamed. We just feel too guilty. Too guilty to go to church. Too guilty to pray. Too guilty to go to fellowship group tonight. If you knew what I did the past week, you wouldn't want to be around me. If you knew what I'd done, how badly I failed. If you knew, you wouldn't want to get close. I'm sure God doesn't. And so we stay away. We stay away from Christ's people. We think this is the way we can stay away from God. But hear this. Do you see what the tabernacle is teaching us? That kind of notion that God doesn't want to be near, that's a lie. That's not true. No, he wants to be with you. That's what this tabernacle is teaching us the whole time. Does he really want to be with us in view of what I have done? Yeah, that's what the tabernacle is telling you over and over. He doesn't know how many more ways to say it. But in case you still doubt it, get this. God came down from heaven to be with you. To die for you and rise for you. Why? To remove all doubt that he doesn't want a relationship with you. He does. He actually moved heaven and earth, or literally moved from heaven to earth. 
just to find you, to be with you. This is incredible. And this is why John in his gospel says it just the way he does. You know this passage, maybe with new eyes. This is John chapter 1, verse 14. Reads this way, And the Word, speaking of the Son of God, of course, in heaven, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But clue, that word dwelt is not the normal word in Greek for just I live nearby. It is the word tabernacle used. He came to tabernacle with us. Glory, glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He came down from heaven to bring you to God. Because He wanted you there with Him. I mean, didn't he say as much when he told the disciples, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But get this, he came down because he is the way, because he wants you to get to the Father. He wants to be near you. And brothers and sisters, if by faith in Christ you still doubt this morning, hear his prayer in the garden. Why did he come? Why did he come down from heaven? Why did he tabernacle among us? Listen to his own prayer. He said this, Father, this is John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire, this is what he wants. I desire they also whom you have given me. He desires what? That they may be with me where I am. That's what he wants. To see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Why would we keep running from a God like this? Why would we dare ignore a God like this? Because you get this. He came down from heaven to be with you but it's not because you're so great. It's because he's so merciful and he loves you anyway. So he gets it. Draw near to him. Welcome his advances. Fellowship with his presence. This is the way. This is the way back home to God through the tabernacle of Jesus Christ. Let's take that way even now in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have made a way that is the way, the effective way that you once again can be with your people. And let us know the joy of your presence, the delight of the gospel, and walk in that assurance no matter what the situation is. For in the end, we know we will be with you. May there be what grips your people. May we walk in your truth. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.